This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dendi Young. Dendi is the managing partner of McLean Capital. It's an investment portfolio, including investments in early stage companies. He's a member of Blue Venture Investors, an angel investment group that supports early stage companies in the Washington, D.C. area. Dendi is also the former CEO of GTSI. GTSI was a $1 billion enterprise services solution provider. Prior to that, Young served as the founder and chief executive officer of Falcon Microsystems. And before that, it was Falcon Systems. So first, Andy, you're a, a leader and a legend around the Washington, D.C. area. It's such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you, Aileen. I pre- appreciate the opportunity. So, uh, Dendi, you, uh, I, there's just so many questions I have. You've had such an incredible career. Um, can you describe just basically your leadership style? Well, you know, I think leadership's an an approach to um, life. It's it's not the it's not the path you choose. It's the path which um, happens to be the the right one that's available at that moment in time. And so, I, I think leadership is listening a lot to to your to to where you are, and then you know, and predicting where it might go, and then putting yourself on that path. Now, have you changed your approach to leadership depending upon the situation or the audience? Uh, I don't think so. I think I'm I'm still, you know, the same person, and leadership is is um, is what whatever the wherever the market drives you, and you've got to be listening to the market. You've got to be be willing to pivot quickly if the if the market changes. It's it's not it's it's not something where you can sort of sort out, write it down ahead of time. You've got to be listening and in touch. And you know, so often that people who are not in touch uh, end up stumbling in the, in their leadership. So as you progressed your career, and you, you've had, like I said, uh, not a straight line in a career. It's it's you you definitely have had some very interesting roles. But uh, have you evolved your leadership style over time? Oh yeah, I think. Um, I'm I'm much smoother than I was. I think I'm much more. Um, I think I'm a better listener than I used to be. I, I'm I'm much more tolerant of, of um, shall we say, people's foibles. Um, so I'm I've come a long way. Um, but that that tolerance is based on having, uh, you know, gone through most of it or many of the things myself. And I, I <laughs> I'm I'm pretty human. I've I've made a lot of mistakes. And and when I see them in other people, I don't. Um, you know, I, I don't respond aggressively. I respond with with a lot more sympathy than I think I used to back in the early days. You know, at at this stage of your career, what are your thoughts of you know from, from what you just said? Uh, get, gave me an idea about management versus leadership. Have you found that you've evolved your approach over the years from being a manager to more of being a leader? Yes, I, I'm. I'm. You know, I initially thought when I first started at Falcon Systems, for example, that uh, as as the manager, you had to really be aware of what everybody uh, should be doing and, and was doing, and you had to sort of uh, 
you, you, you had to be able to, to guide them and, and, and direct them. And as I've uh, gotten more experience, shall we, shall we say, uh, I realized that you've got to put the right people in the right place and they'll take care of themselves. And if you can do that, the only tragedy is when you, you have the wrong person in a particular place. And it's then the challenge is to help them um, get out of that role because they can't succeed and they won't succeed and they won't change in my experience and and help them find a better a better one i've i've been able to do that with many people and it's it's always been good um one metric uh, sort of a anecdotally is that um, i still have very good relationships with anybody i've ever fired because i never fired them uh, because they were bad people i fired you know i fired them because it wasn't a fit for them, that the particular job wasn't a fit for them it wasn't something which um you know made sense for them and once that was explained and and became obvious uh they would say yeah you're you're right can you help me find the, another place which i did and so i still have good relationships with many people that i fired sounds like you're not afraid to act but uh be kind at the same time well uh, I, you know you've got to be human and and i think being kind is to be human and um, so I, I don't I don't think of it as being kind. I think of I think of it as being you know a, another human being uh, who's who's got his or her own issues to deal with, and as I have mine. And, and so it's a matter of uh, perhaps that sympathy or empathy comes through, and and that's that becomes a driving factor. So you know over the years, any leaders that come to your mind in your past have provided you an important lesson or event that caught, taught you. Um, that you wish all leaders knew? Well, you know, um, first of all, I, I don't spend a lot of time studying other leaders because, you know, frankly, there's no time to do that. There's so much to do and so many opportunities and so many things demanding your time that spending time worrying about the past or others' uh, circumstances has never been high in my priority list. But, you know, there are people like my dad had a huge impact on on my skills, I mean, he, he um, you know, he was very much keyed into moderation in all things and what you eat and what you do and and how you, you know, deal with people and so on. So he he was he was a moderation kind of person. Uh, my brother was. Uh, I watched my uh, older brother go through a really tough time when um, uh, a farm that that he had started uh, from scratch, literally from shall we say, bare jungle, um, and created a, a very successful farm out of it. And about that time, it was stolen from him. And, um, you know, instead of um, getting really angry and 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 gone, he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and went back and, and used his, you know, shall we say, updated experience to, to, to become very successful beyond that. So, you know, you, you see people who, who take hits and and watch them and and that's that's always good educate i mean that's always good to think through um and then at another point in time i had a um a mentor uh when i started falcon um called, by the name of lee johnson and lee johnson was an experienced manager and he was incredibly precise and he, you know he was a um anything he did was 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 perfect and, and so he, he i'm not nearly as good as that and you know, I, I watched him and, and he helped me, you know, uh, should we say, gain the, the um, um, knowledge and, and experience and, and you know, situational 
uh, effectiveness that that um, that I needed. And most importantly, he was a um, you know he he was a kind of guy who um, would help me dig out of the holes that I inadvertently dug myself into. So, you know, there are lots of people who have an impact on your life and many people like Lee Johnson, who, um, you know, was a significant contributor to, to my success because uh, because he was a good guy. He's a good man. I mean, he's a, a very um, earnest, um, thoughtful, smart guy uh, with a lot of experience. And he helped impart some of that to me. You, you know, you talk about personal encounters and obstacles that were, or things that you had to hone from your own personal level to be in order to become a more effective leader. How, how, how should people approach things like that? You know, Elena, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the only way to, to approach things is, is to, is to be able to listen a lot and, and, um, use your best knowledge and experience to, to make the best decision at the moment. You know, one funny story, um, right after I finished, uh, graduated from Harvard Business School, and everybody thought that was, you know, awesome and, and cool and so on. And I'm, I'm at this this uh, cocktail party, and, and the sweet young thing um, comes up and starts and, and engages me in conversation. And in the midst of that, she um, turned to me and said, so what did you learn at Harvard? And I wasn't prepared for that question. And I... Um, you know, uh, sort of shook my head for a second and said, you know, I learned that nobody else knows the answer either. And I think that that was sort of one of the fundamental uh, learning experiences, which was to, you can study all the theory and, and, and all of the, um, you know, technology and everything else in the, in the world, but you, you're, nobody else knows the answer because your situation is different than anybody else's. And trying to take, um, those those experiences and do something with them or trying to double guess somebody is really not productive. What you want to do is make the best decision you can at the time and and uh, live with it and then pivot because whatever you decide is probably wrong or slightly wrong or a little wrong. And you, as soon as you figure that out, you pivot to something that's slightly better and, and you know, life goes on. I'm speaking with Dendy Young. Managing Partner of McLean Capital. After the break, we'll discuss leadership versus culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Dendy Young, Managing Partner of McLean Capital. You know, Dendy, talk to us about what you do and why it is important, how you set priorities around that work and approach decision-making. You talked earlier in the earlier segment about, you know, kind of being in the moment and, and taking the experience and what's happening around you to actually approach things. How do you prioritize that? Well, um, Elena, I like to, to build and I like to fill vacuums or, or take advantage of opportunities that exist out there. And, you know, um, I, frankly, I, I spent my life building new companies to fill a vacuum that existed in the marketplace at the time. So my sensitivity to what's there and, and what is, and, you know, what's, what's an opportunity is, is always heightened. And the, the net effect of that is I've always had to work my ass off because there's always more opportunities than there's time to, to take advantage of them. And so, um, you know, it's it's all all a matter of of um, um, how 
hard I can work and which opportunity I choose at this moment. And sometimes I choose good ones and sometimes I choose not so good ones. Um, but I always pivot as quickly as I can and, and, and fix the situation. You know, there's a famous quote from the legendary management consultant, Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I don't think he meant that strategy wasn't important, but rather that power and powerful and empowering culture was a sure route to organizational success. How do you feel about culture and leadership? I, I think um, culture is, is essential. And I think culture is driven by the CEO. I think that uh, he or she is the, is the individual in the company that has to set the expectations, has to set the culture, has to set, um, you know, what, what is, a, what is um, supported and what isn't. And it's, it's that culture which really differentiates companies. In fact, when companies um, merge or get acquired, if they don't have the same culture, it'll, 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 it'll fail because you can't, um, you, you can't sort of force people to change. And especially, um, you know, especially if there's people who, if there are people who have been in one particular business or culture for a period of time, getting them to switch uh, is almost impossible. I think that people, when they take a new job, for example, uh, will always um, spend the first two or three weeks or maybe two or three months in a new company, um, keeping a low profile and listening to the culture. And they, they will, by the end of that period of time, they will embody that culture because they have to in order to um, participate in that company. They don't, they're, they're always, you know, fish out of water. So, yeah, I don't think there's, there's good strategy without a, without a good culture. And strategy um, is, you know, is, is, is basically the embodiment or the, the, shall we say, the interpretation of, of the circumstances um, under, the, under constraints of that culture. The, the CEO should, should identify, should generate the culture and the strategy in effect will flow from that given the, the market circumstances at the time. Got to listen to customers too. They tell you what's really going on. Earlier you said something that I found very intriguing about filling vacuums and you've always been very innovative and especially in business approaches. But I find that if a culture isn't open to innovation or pliable enough to apply innovation, that you, you need to take a different route or, you know, that is the wrong place to implement innovation. Have you found that in your course of your career, you've started some very unique models that at the time weren't out there? Well, I, absolutely. It's, it's always a matter of, of you know, um, the, way, the way I deal with, with a new market or a new opportunity is I, um, I, I, I listen a lot and I, I let the customers tell me what the market wants. So you've got to, you've got to have a, a customer-driven business. You've got to be listening to that market. You can't sort of stand, uh, from, you know, way from the back <clears throat> at the back and, and say, go left or go right. You've got to let the customers tell you to do that. And the only way to do that is to go listen to customers. So I'm, I'm very customer-centric in, 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 in my activities. And, and the, beyond that, it's, it's just a matter of, of um, uh, you know, uh, of following the path uh, that they that they're setting for you, and being willing to pivot or change when they tell you that that path is wrong. I'd like to take a step back for a second, Dendi. What was your first job? 
<laughs> I was uh, uh, I, I was soldering uh, printed circuit boards for a um, a radio manufacturer in Bulawayo, Rhodesia at the time. So I was right out of high school, and um, they they needed some kid who knew how to use a soldering iron. I did, and and so I, I worked for them for um, I'd say what was it, eight months, I think. There was a <clears throat> and um, you know um, you you learn a little bit from that, and then you learn a little bit from your next job, which was um, you know writing Fortran software, Fortran code, and, and software. So I've uh, um, you know, I, I've been working for a, for a long time. I found your beginning years of your career very interesting. You were, you know, not in the U.S. and then you you had some um, movement because of your family. And you ended up here in the U.S. Um, can you talk about your career path and, and how you ended up uh, eventually becoming a CEO of a billion dollar company? <laughs> well, um, you, you know, I think it's, it depends on on, uh, on what your motivation is, and, and I, um, uh, you know, through through my childhood, I, I had a happy childhood and a, and a very sort of Midwestern style, even though it's in the middle of Africa. Um, and um, the only thing that that sort of affected that was that my parents, uh, who I loved dearly and, and were good people, um, just didn't understand money at all, and. They kept having to accept. We never, as a kid growing up, we we ne never had a new car. Um, we had to accept uh, gifts from, as it turned out, my maternal grandfather, who had his own business, and you know, th with that and through that, was able to afford a, a lifestyle. And as I watched that and compared it with our lifestyle at the time, I decided that that what I really wanted to do was own my own business because I it's the only way I knew of to um you know to to make enough money and have enough control of my life and and to accept the, the results if, if they didn't go well um was to do it myself and so that um uh that ability to contrast my father's financial success with my uh, grandfather my maternal grandfather's financial success was really something that drove me into doing what i do how'd you get into tech it didn't sound like your father was in tech no, he was a he was a lawyer and, and later a judge. Um, I got into tech because it was the new thing back when I was in in high school. I mean, I uh, entered a, a science fair, the first science fair ever held outside the United States, and they happened to hold it in Salisbury, Rhodesia, uh, thanks to the, to the um, magnanimous uh, benefit, uh, you know, beneficence of of the American embassy in in, in uh, Rhodesia. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where every kid who entered got a prize in, in, shall we say, good American style. Everybody got a prize. But one of the prizes was this um, all expenses paid scholarship to a college of your choice in the States. And if you're living in the middle of Africa, one of the things you yearn for is that ability to at least have the choice of leaving. Um, as it turned out, I would have gone back and intended to go back, but, uh, um, other that politics sort of prevented that eventually, but but what I did was um, I entered that science fair and um, built what um, I called a computer. But basically, it was a bunch of flip flops with some flashing lights and lots of buttons, and it did add and subtract and, and multiply. But this is in 1964, and so um, 
uh, at, the, at the time, the, the concept of an integrated circuit was, was just being developed and, and, um, um, in, the, in the US. And, and, and so the, the first integrated circuits was, was, a, was a single um, flip-flop on a chip. And that you know, had two transistors and a bunch of other circuitry in it. I was building the same thing from discrete components on my on, on, on my printed circuit boards. So it was an interesting um, experience, and I was lucky enough to pick up the scholarship. That's an incredible story. It sounds like you you were way ahead, decades ahead of of Steve Jobs and um, Bill Gates. If you think of what happened <laughs> decades later, could you imagine? Um, yeah, where did you end up going to school? I went to MIT undergraduate. Wow, that's simply amazing. I'm speaking with Dendi Young, Managing Partner of McLean Capital. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through these challenging times. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Dendi Young, Managing Partner of McLean Capital. Dendi, I read an article that stated that you live by probably many guiding principles, but one in particular that I read was about a speech done by Theodore, past president Theodore Roosevelt. Can you share this principle and why this one and what it means to you? Sure, Eileen. Um, I'm just going to give you the, 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 the whole uh, excerpt from the speech because it, it's the only way it sort of makes sense. So what Teddy Roosevelt said, and I think this is 1929 at, the, at a speech at the Sorbonne, he said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. So his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So that, that's a, a long quote, but it's, it's always inspired me that I've always sort of believed that that you should live a life with, with no regrets, that you've always got to try your hardest. And whether it works or doesn't work, you, 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 you can always look back and say, well, I, I, I did what I, the best I could do. And so that's, that's been a sort of a driving, um, you know, a, a driving force in, in, in my life. Uh, I always want to be able to do something, do it before myself before I ask anybody else to do something. Uh, so those are, those are sort of some of the driving factors to me. Danny, there's so many articles out there. In the prior segment, you brought up empathy and 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 that you maintain relationships with people you have fired. Um, you know, there's so many articles out there right now about empathetic leadership and people being tired out there. There's talk about the Great Resignation. How do you lead during these difficult times with empathy? You know, um, Elaine, I, I don't know. All I try to do is, is put myself in, in the other individual's position. And, and it's um, sometimes hard and sometimes it's very difficult to, to see why they act or behave or think the way they do. But in many cases, or most, perhaps most cases, you can, you can get around to it if you listen enough. 
and and so I I think I think it's just a matter of of um, you know of accepting the fact that that every person has value, and I I firmly believe that there's a there's a place for everyone, you know, in the community that um, that each person has something where they can excel and exceed and 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 be uh, proud of, and it's just a matter of helping them find and and, and achieve that. What leaderships do you really think is required or approached during these stressful times? You, you, you talk about everybody has value, but you know, you, you are a member of, of multiple organizations also. I mean, how, how do you interact and, and, and help, you know, lift everybody up? Well, <clears throat> you know, I look at Northern Virginia Tech Council. Uh, I think that uh, organization is, is one of the more useful and more important um, organizations and and it's it's a way of bringing together the leadership in the community in ways that that allows them to get to know other leaders in the community i've i've met more people through nbtc than um than probably any other way <clears throat> and when you do that you also um, um find uh, opportunities you you find you know teaming up uh, teaming partnerships. Uh, you find people who need things. It's just part of listening to to the marketplace, and the only way you can do that is to be out there and engaged and listening. So, do you think it's important for you know the people uh, out there and the tech leadership to people just starting out to network? Oh yeah, I th I think it's I think it's essential because. Um, and especially with with COVID and and the pandemic and, and stuff, it's really cut back people's ability to um, to know other people and to find other um, vacuums and niches or, or opportunities in the in the community that unless they were out there listening and talking, they'd never know about. And so I think it's 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 more important now than it's ever been. I'm still concerned that people are very nervous about getting together. Um, and that that's going to put a damper on uh, on, on industry, on, on creativity, and, and things like that. So, you know, it's something I, I take very seriously. People are not only nervous about getting together, uh, but it's it, they've kind of gotten used to being apart. Um, how how can we change that dynamic? Because I agree with you. We met at Northern Virginia Technology Council. Uh, networking is so important to understanding your customer, understanding the opportunity, understanding the challenges, and meeting the right people to be fit for the right jobs. Um, how do you think, you know, organizations like NBTC and others like IAC um, can work to bring people together more? You know, I, when, when I first um, joined IAC, I was frankly a little skeptical of, of what it could do or would do or, or whatever. And, and what I discovered is there's a whole bunch of people who work for the government, not for commercial industry, who are very bright, very capable, very thoughtful, and 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 very real. And and I, I really uh, grew to to enjoy my interactions at, at at IAC, and then also at NBTC. I mean, those that's that's the community that you live in, and work with. And and if you can provide value to those people then you're doing something that's useful in your life. And, and I'm, I, I don't know that I ever did all the right things that I could have done, but it certainly wasn't, with, it wasn't for lack of trying. Well, let's talk about all those right things. 
How do you, what one thing that you pops to mind that you're most proud of that you were able to accomplish in your career? Gosh, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I think surviving <laughs> without, without um, you know, ending up in the poorhouse uh, was was probably and 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 I think the other th the other thing the other thing I'm most proud of is uh, finding and marrying uh, my wife Andrea and and having four kids. Um, when all the dust settles, you know, it's it's those kids who will remember me. Um, it's those people who um, make my worth my life worth living, and and uh, that's that's what I enjoy the most at this point. You have four kids. Uh, are they? Did they follow in your footsteps? No, not at all. Um, uh, well, well, one of them might be. Um, so, so um, we have a daughter who's a, a veterinary ophthalmologist. We have another daughter who's an ear, nose, and throat um, pediatric surgeon. Um, and then we have a son uh, who's a product manager. So he's probably closest to to my instincts. And then we have another son who's an ecologist, and so they're all they all have their lives. They're all um, married and and doing well for themselves. And so it's 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 cool to watch that, uh, watch them evolve and 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 share in their lives to the extent that I can. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Lean Black, and today I'm talking with Dendy Young, managing partner of McLean Capital. Next, we'll find out what Denny's advice is to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Legion Letters in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Dendi Young, Managing Partner of McLean Capital. You know, Dendi, the government has had so many challenges recruiting and retaining talent, uh, tech talent. You you started your career um not in the U.S. Um, many countries like China are really pushing education at a very young age to teach things like coding. Uh, some of the main um, uh, papers this this week have been writing about the threat that uh, is out there with um, you know China and um, you know hacking our our major systems. Do you think the United States has been doing enough to develop our tech talent workforce? Uh, Aileen, I don't. I'm very concerned about. Um, it's not just what the United States is doing. It's it's a it's a <clears throat> uh, a sense that why I have of of the entitlement that we we believe that because the the the, the country has been so successful in the, in the past thirty years that this is going to continue forever and that people don't have to work very hard and don't have to do um, the the hard stuff because somebody else is going to do it for them or the government will just pay them to do it anyway and and it's it's a it's a very disturbing trend in in the uh in the, in the society in my opinion well, what do you think we can do about that um, you know whether it be the government or private sector i know you're very active in northern virginia technology council and and i know and having been to the meetings some of the discussion around you know, helping develop some rich talent, especially in the Northern Virginia uh, corridor. Um, what are some of the things that you're actively involved in to help change this dynamic? The the only thing I can do um, at 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 my age and stage is to um, 
talk to as many people as I can about my concerns and to, to help them uh, do something to, to, to change. I, I think we're on a trend line, though, which is going to take a, a crash of some kind to change things. And so I'm very concerned about that. In the meantime, I'm spending a lot of time focused on the farm. The farm is a, is a, wholly, is a totally new endeavor for, for me and, and certainly for my wife. And um, uh, we're, we're building something interesting on that farm, which I think will um, certainly give us time to, to get over the, the other problems that we're, that we're not seeing yet, but certainly incurring. So let's take a step back. You and your wife have a farm where you're building an environmentally conscious, regenerative, <laughs> certified organic. I have I, I took this off your site. Um, certified humane farm. I mean, it kind of like covers the gamut. So tell us about that. It, it sounds so exciting. So tell us about that. And it sounds like you're coming at this problem, uh, some of the issues that we're facing here in the country from a whole different way. Once again, you're figuring out you know, skating to the puck about where the problem is. Well, we're, we're very passionate about food and food quality. Um, I think a, a lot of the problems that we have with uh, people, shall we say, going berserk occasionally, where they shoot up uh, groups for no good reason and stuff like that, we think it's because of, of the food that we're eating right now. If you look at what you buy in the, in the food stores, it's full of chemicals, it's full of, of bad stuff, which has all been approved by the FDA. But I don't take that for granted. And I think that the, um, the more you can go back to what I'll call pure food without, without, the, um, the, you know, without all of the chemicals in it, the better off uh, you, you can be. Um, we, we watched one kid who, had, uh, who was suffering um, from, um, yeah, you know, from, from uh, ADHD, um, was prescribed with Ritalin and... Um, I won't identify the kid because it's not appropriate, but, but um, after their parents um, took, a, took a, well, after his parents took him off, uh, uh, you know, food with all the chemicals in, he got better. And that's the kind of thing which, which we think is happening all over this country right now. So food is very important to us. So there's a, there's a passion here associated with food. And so the only way to do stuff is you've got to do it yourself. And so the only way we could improve food or prove that it's, 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 it has its, uh, the, the potential that it has was to go do it ourselves. And it's not easy. I can tell you that building a regenerative farm today is, uh, is quite difficult. And um, um, it's certainly challenging and it's keeping us busy. What does regenerative farm mean? I mean, most people probably yeah. don't don't have that context. A, a regenerative farm is one that's focused on the soil. A lot of people think farming is focused on the animals or focused on the, the crops or whatever. And a regenerative farm is one that's f focused on the soil. What you do is you take each year, you take steps which, which will improve the, the, the soil in terms of its depth and in terms of its uh, content. And it turns out that good soil you know, re requires not only um, uh, cellulose uh, to, to and, and insects and, um, you know, it, re it requires all of the things which, which make, um, which make a, a normal soil. But once you get that, then it automatically grows and regenerates and, and feeds the next generation. 
So, so we think that, that having uh, a regenerative farm is, is really the ultimate definition of, of success in this world. So not everybody has the uh, resources to be able to have their own far farm. Many uh, kids out there are being di diagnosed um, with a, I have four kids and I, I went through that and uh, didn't take the route of Redolin with my uh, son. Good for uh, you. And, and approached things a little bit different. So this is near and dear to my heart. But for the listeners out there that are, are listening to this and 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 looking for you know that that rope that that thing that's going to pull them out of this problem, um, how could they, without having a farm, maybe learn about how to approach you know food and the outcomes that um, they're looking for to change, um, especially with their kids' lives? The the key thing is to find. Uh, a farm or farmer who understands that that the regenerative clean food approach is is the way to go and then then you know somebody else can do the farming you can buy the food which is good for the farmer because otherwise you know he's going to have too much food but but the the key thing is to, is to is to ha is to be able to work with a with farmer so build a farming community or join a farming community uh, or a, uh, a you know, a supplier, a community that, that supplies regenerative food. You know, Dendi, you've had such an incredible career. You, you know, found a way, um, you're a self-made man, you know, came to the U.S., got incredible education, built, you know, multiple companies that are in excess of value of a billion dollars. You have a sustainable farm. So uh, what could possibly be next for Dendi? <laughs> I think we still have a long way to go on this on this regenerative farm. It's it's still uh, we're still learning. We're we're still building, um, and um, I'm still improving the soil. And so ultimately, when all the dust settles, uh, if we can leave one little section segment of, of Virginia with with better soil than we, than we, than when we found it, I think we will have been successful. Your career and the success you have had is truly inspirational. And you have four kids, um, you know, any pearls of wisdom you would have for that next generation? Yes, understand what you're eating. Um, you know, here I am a techie from way back when, and I'm, my advice to, to everybody now is understand what you're eating, because for the most part, it's not good for you. And it's not helping you um, survive in the long term and, and, and have a and, and have so this is not a religious thing. It's it's a purely pragmatic, practical outlook on life, which is understand your food and don't eat all those chemicals. And it can be hidden in many places. If farm raised, uh, you know, salmon, for an example. Uh, oh, yes. is... Yeah, I mean, all the stuff that, that we eat, uh, you, you know, that our beef has the same, um, the beef that we raise has has the same, um, you know, the, the same characteristics, if you like, in terms of, of the omega-3s and omega-6s as salmon does. And that's not true about all beef. And the reason is because it's all entirely grass-raised, whereas most beef, they talk about grass-raised and grass-finished and grass-this. It's, it's, it's not true. And they're, they're feeding all kinds of bad stuff to those animals. So if I, if I walk into Whole Foods and I have a choice between grass-raised beef which they have signs up versus regular is am i am i making a choice that's not really true 
Yeah, you, well, it's clear that the, the grass raised is, is better, but if you want a, 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 the definite, but you should check out the definition of it because um, you'll find that that the commercial definitions of, of some of these uh, you know phrases is doesn't doesn't match the reality. I, I could go into this in a long, uh, spend a lot a lot of your time on this uh, topic, uh, Andy. And I've I've become in the last five years I, I've just come up the education curve on this dramatically. So one last question for you for that next generation. Uh, I have some kids that are just in college and just graduated. Um, you have a tenant, like I said, you skate to the puck, you skate to where technology or the need is going. Uh, where would you put your stake in your next career if you were in tech for the next generation? Well, there's, there's so many places. I mean, tech is just expanding uh, unbelievably. There's, uh, you know, quantum computing, huge new. If, you, if, you, if your kids look at where the puck will be, you know, Five to ten years from now, when when they are finally ready to, should we say, take leadership roles in the community, uh, quantum computing is a good example. Uh, I'm in the um, with SecureG. I'm in the the five G business and the zero trust business, and that's a uh, that too is is a, is another technology that that whose time hasn't quite come yet, but will be here in the next ten years. And so you've got to look for those kinds of niches and those kinds of opportunities. I have another company that that has a an innovative um, antenna design, <clears throat> which allows you to transmit uh, through a Faraday cage or underwater or, or in other places. So there's still real opportunity out there, and you've just got to be looking for it. And and sooner or later you'll find something which which catches your attention and catches your eye, and then go for it. Then it's not the critic who counts; it's the person who's in the arena. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Dendi Young. Dendi, first off, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. Well, well thank you, Eileen. I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I hope I haven't bored you to tears. <laughs> I, I learned so much today about uh, some of the technology decisions, even more important about our food. I'm Eileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.